that's motivating some people to, you know, as they trim U.S. overweight or seek to diversify, Canada's a natural target of some of that allocation. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. Well into the last quarter of the year, this is a time when advisors may be looking to rebalance client portfolios. To that end, Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKinney take a world tour, starting right here at home with Canadian equities and then to emerging markets, two geographies that have brought in decent returns and offer a useful counterbalance to at-risk U.S. assets. Our portfolio managers also examine fixed income in Canada and abroad, providing arguments for and against either option, especially as market volatility continues to rise. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Hello, and welcome to our BMO Global Asset Management Canada Weekly Insights ETF Call for Advisors. I'm your host, Mark Rays, head of product for BMO Game Canada, covering ETFs and funds. I want to thank everyone for joining us this morning. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for listening in, and hopefully thanks for your question as well as we progress. This morning, we are joined by Chris McKamey and Chris Heeks, both are portfolio managers on our ETF desk, focusing on equity and derivative solutions, but of course, well-versed across the shelf, uh, including fixed income and, and other products that we have. So let's uh, get right into things here. We're through month end. In fact, we're through quarter end. So it's a good time to look again at flows, activity across the industry. Uh, overall, I'd say flows tapered off a bit in September, still positive, uh, $1.1 billion. And of course, backed by an excellent year to date with over $32 billion in flows so far. We like to think of ETFs as excellent tools to efficiently rebalance portfolios. And as well, when we see volatility, we've seen ETFs as a share of market volume certainly jump during these uh, periods. A bit interesting that we didn't see the same jump per se in September. However, I want to put this in a context of, of S&P 500, so our ZSP ETF. How have spreads been impacted by market volatility? You know, we've, we've been at the forefront of ETF education pointing out that mature ETFs develop their own liquidity pools. So when you when you think about the efficiency of, of this exposure in, in this particular ETF, ZSP, how are institutions using this ETF to rebalance during these periods of volatility? Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And uh, to, to kind of reiterate your point, uh, you know, a very good year for ETFs. So we uh, 32 billion so far. We're actually at an all-time record for a calendar year uh, on ETFs. Uh, with still three months to go in the year. So the previous record was last year at around 30 billion. So we're we're ahead of pace already with with some time to go here. Um, you know, in terms of trading, trading, it's been you know, especially on the equity side, it's been you know, a very resilient year despite 
you know, the, the major turmoil we've had, obviously, in equity markets. And we hit circuit breakers in March, and that, sh- that would shut down trading for, you know, a short period of time. But generally speaking, I think equity trading in general, and, and including ETFs, has been pretty resilient. It's been fairly orderly, you know, in comparison to something like, you know, a flash crash scenario. And in, in that scenario, we saw, you know, many equities simply not have bids or offers or have extremely wide, like literally penny bids or, you know, thousand dollar offers. So uh, nothing like that, um, you know, been a, been a very orderly year. Uh, so overall, I think clients, you know, seeking to achieve liquidity, you know, be them, you know, retail or institutional, um, they've been able to do that. And, and I think that's part of the reason why you see, you know, generally speaking, ETFs um, trade a lot more during periods of volatility. You know, when I think of institutional trading, I, I you know, there's there's a lot of different um, kind of trade paths you can take. Um, you know, something we as a provider definitely seek to educate the public on. Um, but generally speaking, and in particularly with ZSP, which is a very liquid exposure, the S&P 500, you know, some institutions may seek outright block liquidity, you know, in partnership with, you know, one of the many market makers that, that are active on our products. And, you know, they can, so they can, um, you know, get that certainty of price and, and get done in one shot, so to speak. Uh, we also see a lot of institutions utilizing NAV trades as well. So, you know, if your benchmark is the close, say, which, which, is, which is often the case for, for institutions, you know, they might just prefer to do a NAV trade. And again, that's something that can be uh, negotiated with, um, with, with our market making partners. So, uh, so there's, there's, there's a few different ways to kind of, Slice the uh, slice the pie, so to speak, with with trading. Um, you know, I would you know definitely recommend for, for for our listeners and our callers. That's something you know we pride ourselves on providing that you know pre-trade you know execution plans and analysis. You know, should you have any kind of large trades or small trades? You know, simply any questions regarding trading. Um, there, you know, that's that's something we're there to to certainly help with. But yeah, lots of lots of different ways to, to slice the apple, and we are seeing institutions are you know, certainly, certainly active this year in um, moving their positions around. Yeah, maybe I'll uh, just jump in as well. To, to your first point, Mark, um, you know, typically, as you say, in times of volatility, we see that share of volume, you know, the ETF share of volume increase. And, you know, maybe we didn't see that in September, as you say, even though volatility picked up. And I, I think part of the reason there was you know, this, it was obviously a smaller sell-off in September than what we saw earlier in March, but it was also much more orderly. Um, you know, I think 10% peak to trough maybe, but it was also, you know, orderly sell-off, relatively low volume in general. Um, in fact, if you look at the volume on the S&P 500 complex, um, you know, it was only higher in September. It was only higher than July or August this year, you know, every other month. Um, since March anyway, had higher volume than, than we saw in September. So I think part of the sell-off we saw in September was really more just an undoing of, of the, the melt-up, the rally we saw in August, um, with September closing the month actually still a little bit higher than, um, than where July closed. And so it was just more of an undoing of that melt-up we saw in August, a bit of an orderly sell-off um, in September. But as you say, you know, the S&P 500 and specifically ZFP, our ETF, um, you know, they, they do develop their own liquidity pools because there's obviously just such a high number of participants active in that space. 
Um, and when you think about equity markets, you know, the S&P 500 complex is by far um, the most liquid uh, complex globally um, here in Canada, for sure. But obviously, south of the border with the number of ETFs, futures, options, um, options on futures, swaps and things like that um, on, on both index level and on, on different various ETFs as well. There's just a huge amount of liquidity in that space where dealers are able to offset um, any risk they're taking very quickly. And so that just leads to very tight spreads from the dealers themselves. And it also leads to tighter spreads um, from from other participants, whether that's institutions, whether that's retail, um, also stepping in and making those bid-ask markets. And so we have seen that in ZSP. Certainly um, throughout the year, but certainly specifically in September during that sell-off, you know, we didn't see any impact of spreads at all. Um, and again, I think it was due to the very um, calm and, 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 and na- nature of, of that sell-off and, and orderly sell-off that, that it was. And so, um, again, we think, you know, in times of stress, if it does get stressful, if it does get a little bit crazy, um, you, you look to those areas like the ZSP and the S&P 500 complex to make sure you can get in and out of your positions or rebalance those positions um, as efficiently as you can. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to both of you. And, you know, if I, if I bring it back to advisors, I wanted to give the institutional example because, of course, they, they tend to trade in larger blocks. Just looking at the dollar volume of ZSP over the last couple of months, there's a number of hundred million dollar days. So, you know, for advisors, even with large books that are looking to make quick, efficient rebalancing trades, these mature ETFs, even here in Canada, uh, really provide a lot of value to to rebalance that portfolio. So, ZSP I use as an example because, of course, the the size and of course the volume. Uh, but it extends to other more mature ETFs as well, particularly when you look at less liquid asset classes. Thanks for that. So let's uh, let's switch gears to fixed income. We're again looking at flows. Uh, we saw government bonds in in September jump to the top of the list. A number of different providers with, with government bond ETFs near the top. Now we've been talking about defensive positioning in front of the U.S. election. Uh, not only because of the potential outcomes, but of course also the uncertainty with the mail-in and the and the whole voting process, and whether of course whether or not Trump might uh, respect the results depending on how it goes. Um, how do you attribute uh, this surge in flows? Is it just people profit taking? Is it worries about the market? Uh, general rebalancing? Your thoughts on these flows in the government bonds? Thanks. Yeah, I think there's probably, in terms of the government bonds, I think there's probably a couple of things going on. And certainly, I I think there's a lot of reason to maybe de-risk a little bit going into year-end here. Obviously, 2020 has been a a bit of a roller coaster in the markets. Um, But I would think most investors are probably in a a fairly decent position, all things considered, at this point of the year, um, in terms of the total return they've experienced. And so I think you know, heading into year-end with, uh, as you say, a number of these um, unknowns that could last um, through the calendar year potentially, um, I think you see investors maybe taking a little bit of risk off the table um, and being defensively positioned until there's a little bit more clarity as to, um, you know, what policies we're going to see 
um, from south of the border, which direction are things going to go um, going forward? You know, certainly looking out a year plus, I think there's a lot of reasons to be constructive um, and a lot of opportunity there. But in the short term, um, you know, defend, being defensive against that potential volatility, I think, is, is making a lot of sense. Um, the, the other thing that maybe we're seeing with government bonds relative to corporate bonds is a little bit of that profit-taking potentially. You know, we did see flows into corporate bonds this month as well, um, but that was kind of offset by some flows out of corporate bonds also. And I think that is reflecting that profit-taking element. You know, if, if you allocated to corps in March or April, you've had a really good run here um, in the fixed income space and, you know, corporates obviously outperforming, um, you know, government bonds or aggregate bonds as spreads have come in significantly. I think investment grade spreads now are actually lower than they were a year ago. Um, I wouldn't say maybe they should be considering the, the level of risk we might see going forward, but, um, you know, certainly have come down significantly from the highs that they were at in March and April. And so that spread compression has led to very strong returns in the corporate bond space. And so if you are a fixed income investor and a fixed income allocator, um, A, those corporate bonds might be getting a little bit overweight to where you want them to be, but also they've given you a strong return um, in the second half of this year. And so maybe investors taking a little bit off the table there and reallocating to the government. And again, maybe just being a bit more defensive into year end as, you know, looking at what stimulus, what effect stimulus is going to have, whether that's government stimulus or monetary stimulus. Um, you know, a lot of companies are, are certainly not out of the woods in terms of the next six months and the challenges they might face. And so taking a little bit of exposure away from that, especially, again, given the good run that you've had um, in that space, I think makes a little bit of sense also. And thanks for that, Chris. And you, you did mention stimulus, certainly an interesting evening last night with Trump making the call to push off the um, stimulus discussions to post the election. So. Yes, that volatility is, is going to be with us over the next couple of months for sure. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, we encourage you to tune in to our deep dive series where we take you under the hood of the BMO GAM product suite. Our latest episode takes a deeper look at emerging markets, an essential exposure often overlooked by Canadian investors. Listen in to learn more about the growth opportunities that exist in this still misunderstood asset class. Check it out. It's the episode dated September 29th in this same podcast series. Another thought about flows, we, we always see the broad beta exposures do well, so that's not a surprise to see them near the top of the, the list. However, I was a bit surprised to see Canada via our ZCN uh, actually place more flows compared to the U.S. market via ZSP. Are you seeing institutions and advisors through your conversations uh, stepping into the lagging Canada trade? Uh, is, there, is there a catalyst at play there, or is it simply um, a contrarian trade considering uh, the return spread over, over the course of the year? Thanks. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, we... You know, to answer the first question on flows, we, we, we have seen uh, heightened flows into Canada um, across across kind of the industry, uh, dragged down a bit by, by XIU, which saw outflows, but that one is known for kind of chunky flows. So if you take that away, you know, Canadian equities brought in 
know, pretty decent amount of three, three, four hundred million total this uh, this last month. Um, I do think it's investors seeking returns outside of the U.S. Uh, for some of the reasons that that uh, Chris McCainy mentioned. You know, certainly the the coronavirus woes and the election volatility, the path forward, you know, uncertainty around stimulus. I think a cool demand. You know, I do think a lot of our investors have healthy weights already into U.S. equities, and so they've naturally looked elsewhere. You know, I think we've talked about it. It's been a theme of the year that we've seen uh, more flows to international and EM. And, uh, yeah, nice to see that finally Canada is getting a few flows. You know, in terms of a catalyst, I think the best catalyst that I, that I see right now is just a promise from, uh, you know, from Trudeau and the Liberal government of, you know, navigating this crisis as a, a no no austerity pledge you know he said he, he committed to no austerity and and uh so you know in terms of that stimulus promise from the government it's going to be there you know in terms of the bank of canada promise of low rates uh certainly the new governor appears to be pretty conducive to keeping rates uh lower for longer you know as you say so I think in terms of that fiscal and monetary backdrop, you know, some of those big key themes that have led equity markets higher, uh, nice to see they're, they're in place in Canada as well for equity investors. So, you know, I think that's, um, you know, that is a catalyst for, you know, better, up, better, better upside in, in equities over the next kind of 12 months. You know, we've seen stabilization in, in energy prices as well. Um, you know, it's always hesitant to make a call in that market just with how volatile it is, but, you know, at least at a big picture kind of government and monetary level, you know, these, these policies are conducive to, um, you know, to help your equity returns. So I think that's, uh, that's a little bit of what we're seeing. And perhaps that's motivating some people to, you know, as they trim perhaps a U.S. overweight or seek to diversify, you know, Canada's a natural target of some of that allocation. Thanks, Chris. And staying with this trade rotation idea, or at least rebalancing, uh, looking at emerging markets with our ZEM, it stood out both for returns and also for flows. Uh, I know you just put together a deep dive podcast on ZEM. Can you give us some highlights uh, for those looking into this trade and potentially repositioning their portfolios? Thanks. Yeah, you speak about diversifying away from the U.S. Um, emerging markets is something that's really stood out. You mentioned the return um, the return side of it, you know, they outside of the U.S. and really outside of U.S. tech, the best place to be over the last year has been emerging markets. So in terms of kind of the, the kind of quick rundown of, of what you would get on the podcast or through the, the PDF, um, you know, the thesis is really, you know, again, emerging markets is always the center of growth. Um, you're seeing a kind of average 4 to 5% GDP in emerging markets. You know, developed markets are kind of around 1% on average. So, they are the engine of global growth, um, tends to be where you see population growth. Um, there's a lot of technology adoption still happening in emerging markets. So there's people still getting smartphones for the first time. There's, there's infrastructure that's, either, that's being built out kind of for the first time. There's, there's a rise of the middle class effect. I think it's happening in emerging markets more so than really anywhere else in the world. Uh, certainly the rise of China has been a major part of the EM story. Um, you know, another thing that we can point out in the article is is how much better emerging markets diversifies, you know, Canadian investor now than it has in the past. So, you know, EM is less of a resource play than, than it really was kind of 10, 15 years ago. 
know, for emerging markets now, I think it's a bigger story about the growth of a consumer and the growth of technology. And, you know, we look at the composition of the index and how it's changed. And you can really, you know, in the piece, you can really see how that's, you know, changed dramatically. And, you know, it actually looks a little bit more like the U.S. in terms of sector weights. You've got, you know, higher weights to the consumer staples and discretionary and technology as well. Um, so, you know, from a Canadian investor point of view, you know, the argument of, you know, I don't need to invest in EM because it just gives me resources, which I already have in Canada. You know, I think that's less of a valid argument these days. And, you know, we've also seen the correlation decrease. This is something we point out as well. So, you know, again, the returns have been very strong. China's been a big part of that. They've, they've opened up their market um, to international investors. So we now have a share access within emerging markets. You know, obviously, China navigated the COVID crisis uh, better than others, um, you know, probably probably the best in the world. And, you know, really, they helped sustain uh, global equity markets in, in March and April um, when, when, um, when obviously the rest of the globe was struggling um, substantially. So, I, you know, I think the overall conclusion in, in terms of EM is, you know, I think if you're an equity investor and, you know, you want to have a diversification in the, the optimal portfolio, I think, you know, emerging markets is something you want to have in your portfolio. Uh, ZEM, you know, it's a long track record, one of our longest standing ETFs over 10 years now. And it's got a long-term track record of top quartile performance, top quintile, I believe, in the top 20% uh, on the Morningstar category rating. So it's the largest EM ETF in Canada. It's low cost, and it's just overall a great way to access EM exposure. So just trying to start that conversation amongst uh, clients to think, you know, think about what allocation makes sense for them. But we do think, you know, if you're an equity investor, you want to have exposure to global equity markets. You know, you want to you want to have some EM in your portfolio. Great, thanks for that, Chris. And again, that podcast is available for those looking for a deeper dive. Uh, I'm just going to ask one more before we go to the lines. We've also seen a lot of continued interest in global fixed income. Uh, I'd say as advisors look to decouple from that duration trade and, of course, look for alternative yield sources. However, the risk that comes up with this trade typically is is higher correlation with, with equity markets, you know, depending on how far into credit that product might go. So, for me, it always turns back to the Canadian aggregate bonds, uh, which, of course, we have our ZAG ETF. Can you comment on the year-to-date returns uh, and performance of that ETF and really the, the importance it has as, as a core position in your portfolio? Thanks. Sure. And I think, um, you know, as you say, we have seen an uptick in global fixed income allocation um, at least in terms of the flows we've seen in, into the ETF landscape. Um, I'm, I'm not sure investors are looking for alternative sources of yield. Uh, Mark, if they go into global fixed income, there's actually very little yield to be had um, globally in, in the fixed income space. Um, I think, you know, what investors, you know, relative to your comment on Zag there, I think what investors need to do is, is sit down and think about what are they trying to accomplish with their fixed income allocation um, and does global fixed income fit that need or fit that objective? Because in such a low interest rate environment globally, um, a fixed income allocation right now primarily is just a risk control tool to, to equity exposures. So you want some of that duration exposure 
when equity markets are selling off because that generally is going to protect you in that portion of the portfolio. You're not going to see um, declines from your fixed income exposure when equities are going down. At least that's the goal anyway. Um, but different countries have different duration exposure. They have different um, interest rate curves that are going to react differently to, you know, a Canadian equity market sell-off or a U.S. equity market sell-off. You know, I, again, investors need to ask themselves, do they want to match um, Canadian equity exposure with Canadian fixed income exposure, U.S. equities with U.S. fixed in- income and Euro equities with Euro fixed income? I think that's probably going a little bit too far um, in terms of trying to um, achieve a certain objective. And again, coming back to what is fixed income going to do for you right now? Again, it's primarily that risk control element because there is such little yield um, out there. So once you start moving away from Canadian fixed income or, or, or even U.S. fixed income, I, I would say these two are actually highly correlated as the Canadian market is so tied to the U.S. market. You know, if you see an equity market sell-off, that Canadian duration component um, that Zag gives you is generally probably good enough to give you that um, that balance against that equity market exposure. As you mentioned, you start moving into global fixed income areas, you'll see that correlation with equity markets actually start to, to tick up a little bit. So you don't get as much of that protection against equity market sell-offs. At the same time, as I mentioned, you're not really getting more yield um, going externally either. You're giving up probably about 1% plus uh, by moving into the global space versus um, that Canadian aggregate bond uh, exposure. And, you know, to your question on returns, we've seen that in the returns as well, you know, one, 2%, um, maybe almost 3%, depending on which fund you're looking at um, in terms of zag outperformance relative to some of the global fixed income exposures we've seen out there. You know, where you might want diversification in your fixed income space is in the credit exposure, the credit markets. Um, Obviously, that's more about um, exposure to companies and corporations. Um, And if you're worried that these companies might not be able to repay their debt or that spreads widen, um, you know, you want as much diversification there as possible. Once you start going beyond that into different, um, you know, government bonds, um, start to think about the fact that, okay, Canada is actually a AAA rated um, government. You're not really going to get higher credit ratings by going uh, to global governments, um, and you're not getting higher yield either. So you're actually worsening your credit quality potentially um, for less yield as well. So um, when you're looking at that space, again, investors, I think, just need to think about what are they trying to accomplish with their fixed income allocation? What are they trying to get out of it? Um, And does global fixed income corporates or governments or otherwise um, fit part of that objective? Because I think to your point, um, ZAG actually accomplishes almost almost all of that when you're looking at it in context of a balanced portfolio and that offset against equities. Yeah, thanks for that, Chris. And it's it's interesting as as we reach abroad looking for yield, looking for returns, and you know I see ZAG with a year-to-date return um, almost eight percent. So certainly there's been some tightening across the curve which has helped fixed income, but uh, really, again, some strong performance out of broad Canadian markets represented by our ZAG. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Thanks for listening and hopefully picking up some great insights on on flows, market direction, trade ideas from our PMs. Really appreciate you listening in. 
And of course, thanks to both Chris McKinney and Chris Heeks uh, for your valuable insights, uh, your ideas around the market, uh, and as well breaking down what's been what's been going on in flows both this month and, and year to date. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone once again for joining us. Wish everyone a great day, and thanks very much. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKinney for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we received an all-round view of the Canadian market and why a homeward tilt in the portfolio may offer the peace of mind your clients crave in the current environment. For example, our experts highlighted the benefits of ZAG, our aggregate bond ETF, which not only provides generous returns, but also protects against an equity market sell-off. Similarly, the BMO Emerging Markets ETF, ticker ZEM, delivers valuable diversification from U.S. equity markets, offering sector exposures still tied to information technology and innovation, but without the high degree of correlation. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please see the episode notes below, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit bmoetfs.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to subscribe. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please send them to Andrew Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at BMO.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment tax or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.